The First Tee with Robbie Greenfield and Zane Scotland. Brought to you by the DP World Tour, the race to Dubai. Hello, one and all. Welcome along to the fifth episode of the First Tee podcast with DP World Tour, hosted by myself, Robbie Greenfield and Zane Scotland. We've got a special show coming up. We're in conversation with none other than Tommy Fleetwood, the man who claimed the winning point for Europe at the Ryder Cup. Tommy explains the backstory behind the all-conquering Fleetwood Mac. He takes us inside the team room for some great insight on Europe's memorable victory. And he reveals what it was like to stand on that 16th tee, driver in hand, with the Ryder Cup on the line. He'll also tell us about his passion for investing in the future through the Tommy Fleetwood Academy and why that project is such a crucial part of his legacy. Welcome then. Welcome to the First Tee Podcast. Excited about this one. We've got a former Race to Dubai champion, a Ryder Cup hero, the current world number 14 on the show, Tommy Fleetwood, uh, in a conversation with him at his Tommy Fleetwood Academy at Jumeirah Golf Estates. But before we bring Tommy into this, I want to say a warm welcome to a man who not only has been playing some good golf over the course of the last week, but he's invested in a brand new microphone and he's in the big leagues now. We've joined the professional ranks, Zane Scotland. You're all mic'd up. Robbie, you know, I really feel like I made it. I'd just really like to thank all, all the sponsors and the... Yeah, I mean, this is it's a real game changer for us. I really feel like we've arrived now. So, you know, we've got, we've got a big opportunity ahead of us. I'm forecasting at least 10 or 15 more downloads of this episode just because Please. of your mic, Zane. We've got Tommy Fleetwood on the show. Fantastic to have him. He gave us so much time. It was his first interview, Zane, since the Ryder Cup finished in Rome. And um, he was in great form. He was in great spirits. And it's amazing to think he's only 32 as well. It feels like he's been around a long time. He was raced to Dubai champion back in 2017, six years ago. He's won a bunch of titles on the DP World Tour. I think he's a six-time winner on the DP World Tour. Got into a playoff at the PGA Tour's Canadian Open this summer. That was a chance for a first PGA Tour title. Just missed out on that. But you see a lot of guys who have, have kind of made rapid rises up the ranks in golf who, who end up winning a major, and it kind of knocks them sideways a little bit. That sort of, it almost happens too soon for them. Whereas I feel when, when it happens for Tommy, and I'm sure... A major championship is in his future. I'm absolutely sure of that. When it happens, I think he's going to handle it very well because as you're going to hear from this interview, and I think it comes across from him, he's just got this brilliant attitude and you know he, he has such a positive outlook on things. And I think when, when the time comes that he does win a major, he will ride that curve, if you like, very, very effectively. And it, won't, it, it, will, it will almost be a springboard for him to go from strength to strength as opposed to something where you think, oh, I've achieved my childhood dream and, and then, you know, you, you take a long time to recalibrate. We see that with a lot of players. Yeah, we do. I mean, yeah, that's a, that's a really good point. Someone like, like Tommy, like he's like, he's ready to win a major. Like he's kind of done everything else and, and, and beyond the golf, he's now uh, very comfortable being popular, very comfortable having the eyes on him and expectations on him. So he's, he's ready for it. It's not, it, it, when he wins a major, it's not going to be a, well, that come out of the blue, you know, kind of young British winner who's popped up and let's see where he can go from here. It will be just an addition into an already stellar career to where you think if he goes, you know, there's only so many people, like you said there, someone might win a major and go, wow, I've won a major. That's, that's been my dream forever. Great. He would be, yes, I've won a major. That's been one of my dream forever. Right. Now, how am I going to get my second one? You know, he'll be, he's that he's in, he sits in that category. There's a certain category we chatted about before. You've got 
tiger that sits in his own category. You know, it's a, it's a weird stratospheric level up here. But then there's that, that batch of people who are like, uh, Tommy could be a world number one. Like, there's a certain amount of people who could be a world number one. And part of that is not just the golf. It's the whole character around it, your persona being comfortable, happy to have the eyes on you. When the crowds are big, can you display it? Can you turn it on? And there's a couple of pieces that are probably going to come together. Like at some point, you know, he's not won the PJ Tour yet. been pretty close. That is going to be a small question for him to be able to do that. It'd be nice to get a win the PJ Tour it, via it being a major championship. But like, he's got all the pieces. Like when he wins that PJ Tour event, when he wins a major, you know, it would just be a matter of like, right, that's great. Got that in the bag. What have I got to do to get my second one? Not many people have the capacity to win multiple majors. And Tommy Fleetwood, he has that from a personal point of view. And then his game, fantastic golf game, uh, quite unique. Like when I've watched golf over the last, on course, over the last two to three years, not many people that move the ball right to left in the in the men's game these days. In the women's game, you see it a lot. In the men's game, not so much, especially off the tee. Everybody seems to want to move it left to right. And... He can move it left to right, but his natural shape is still, he's happy to stand up and hit a right to left draw with a driver. Not many people do that these days. He's it's, it's quite unique in that way. He certainly is, yeah. I hadn't even thought about that, but uh, we've got him on the show. Let's, without further ado, we'll hear from the man who claimed the winning point for Europe at the Ryder Cup, Tommy Fleetwood. Great to have Tommy on the show. Caught up with him at the Tommy Fleetwood Academy. It was, as I mentioned earlier, the first interview he'd done since leaving Rome. It was his chance to reflect on it all. We we talked in a wide-ranging conversation about the Tommy Fleetwood Academy, his hopes and aspirations for that, why uh, he wants it is such an important part of his legacy, celebrating the first anniversary of that affiliation with the DP World Performance Centre. We'll we'll get more on that uh, later on in the show. And uh, we'll also hear about how he reflects on the year and moving forward with his career as well but there was only one place to start really Zane and that was with the Ryder Cup told Tommy that as a fan watching you could see the outpouring of joy from the European players there have been closer Ryder Cups there have been in many ways more dramatic Ryder Cups Miracle of Medina to name just but one but this one felt special for Team Europe how did Tommy reflect on it? On a personal level, I think the way that my Ryder Cup journey has been, I, you know, my first one was in France. You know, that was amazing. That was my first one. It went so well for, for us all. And we sort of um, cruised to victory, if you like, in that one. And I had no other experience of a Ryder Cup. It's that, well, we won that one. That was great. And then um, took a hammer in at Whistling Straits um, away from home with, with no fans whatsoever because of the COVID situation. And I think we've all said it a few times. I think we on that 18th green at Whistling Straits, I think straight away, you know, you all stood there in silence, you didn't need to look at each other, but every single one of you wanted to be back because uh, we didn't like that feeling of, you know, losing and the way we lost and how we didn't feel like we did ourselves justice in the way that we played. And we just wanted to get that opportunity again and try and make the next team and get that opportunity to come and play and, and get the Ryder Cup back. So I think this one, this one came with a lot of, like a lot of points to prove and I think a lot of desire from us all so I I think when that time came on Sunday when we did um, you know eventually win the Ryder Cup I think we were I, I felt relieved because I was one of the ones hitting the shots towards the end but I, I just think there was a lot of pride and joy in the fact that we'd um, 
not necessarily that we've been written off, but I think Europe generally, uh, for whatever reason, I, I, I know the US has such a strong team and that you know so so many amazing golfers. But I think Europe always going as underdogs, and we never we don't have a chip on our shoulder at all. We don't mind that at all, but we don't see ourselves that way. And I think a lot of times we feel like we might have a point to prove, but this time we just. We were so motivated um, to get that Ryder Cup back. So I think when we eventually did, the emotion was was sort of pretty crazy. It's yeah, so, so. Oh, and it's such a good event. It's cra- I, mean, to, I can't even imagine what it's like to to be at the heart of it and be a part of it. Even as a golf fan, I find it very hard to watch golf after a Ryder Cup. <laughs> I always think it occurred to me it must be a weird transition for for you as a player to hit a regular tee shot in a regular tournament after after being in that kind of yeah. cauldron of noise for three days is that a weird sensation go it kind of yeah. coming back down to earth in a I, way yeah i think i yeah 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 for sure i think the um it's such an emotional roller coaster to the Ryder cup and um it's crazy that you you still never get used to um like for instance when you play two matches in a day say the it's not necessarily you're not physically tired when you go into the second round but emotionally there's like a drop-off where you finish the first match and then you have to get yourself up because every point means so much and there's always so much, you feel so much pressure when you're playing. Um, and like I say, emotional roller coaster. And, you're, and, and it's, it's more that than anything else, like emotionally grueling. And um, yeah, when you, play, when you play a normal tournament, I, I guess you're back to normal and you're playing for yourself again. And like we went straight to the Dunhill, which is an event that I absolutely love, but it's definitely a very different um, it's a different feeling, but also it's quite nice in a way because I guess you um, very rarely play a tournament where you feel as sort of calm as, as the <laughs> following week of a radical. It's true, true. Yeah, I suppose yeah. there is that flip side. You know, Luke Donald has been showered with praise, rightly so. Uh, you know, he's been meticulous, as all the good captains are. When did it become apparent to you that he was, you know, potentially a, a special captain, someone who was going to be a great leader? Well, he's been great through the entire process, you know, whatever that's been, 18 months or so. I think um, he's been great in the way that he, he's still playing, which is, which is always a massive benefit because he's always around at the tournaments. Um, he's communicated well with a lot of people. I was close to Luke before the Ryder Cup anyway, so um, that, that was great for me. Um, I've spent a lot of time, you know, having practice rounds or um, eating with Luke at tournaments, so I think he was great at that. And then in particular, I think... Um, some of the ideas that he brought, the practice day that we had a week and a half prior to the Ryder Cup when we all travelled to Italy together, I think that was arguably the best thing we did about the whole Ryder Cup. Just um, that day and a half where you spend all that time together, everything kind of beds in, you have a great time at the golf course, you get to know each other that bit more, which is always, it always happens, but that's obviously happening on the Tuesday or the Wednesday of the Ryder Cup, whereas we did that two weeks prior. Then we went to Wentworth and all played golf together because we were drawn together. So I think that was... That was great. And then the way that he spoke in all the team meetings, the way that, you know, we had a presence and an air about him that I think was really, really cool. And I think everybody, you know, watched him speak and and everybody just had a lot of respect for Luke being the captain and the decisions that he was making. And, you know, on top of that, we played well and we, yeah. and we won. So you always, you always look great. But um, yeah, he was, he was fantastic. I, you know, speak very highly about him. How did the, the Forsens partnership with, with Rory come about? Was it something that he, he thought of? Was it, was it kind of data-led? Was it personality-led? Um, or was it the fact that you knew it was going to be a Fleetwood Mac, therefore it was always going to be the, a media favourite? To- totally the name. Totally the name. <laughs> um, 
we've been, we've actually been close to playing together before right. in a Ryder Cup, and it's um, it's not quite worked out uh, the way that the team's been set up in the past. So we've been close before. From a foursome standpoint, our games match up pretty well. But then uh, Luke was very big on foursomes. If uh, there's guys that are playing a similar golf ball, put those guys together. So that was great for us. You know, uh, we actually use a different ball, but. Rory can very easily transition into the golf ball that I'm using, so that was that was what we did. So that was that was probably the the main reason, if you like. Luke was massive on um, if you're playing foursomes and these guys play with the same golf ball because that makes a massive difference. If if your personalities are going to match together and everything like that, then then you guys go out. So me and Rory obviously very happy. I'll play with Rory McIlroy any day in, I was in a foursome say, scenario. It's not so, a bad um, not a bad guy to have hit you every and other I, shot. Yeah, I know, and I and I just think <laughs> you know, again we're close and I think we've played together a lot and I think our games match very very well and it was you know a joy being out on the golf course with him in those scenarios and I said at the time how many people would love a round of golf with Roy McIlroy and I get to do it in a Ryder Cup so that was you know that was great for me. For us mere mortals Tommy who will never experience this what's it like to be able to hit Rory's drives? <laughs> they weren't always straight I'll tell you that. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, we actually in, in the um, in the practice day uh, that we did in Italy the two weeks prior um, obviously the partnerships were kind of something that we've been speaking about there and I remember we were uh, on the first hole and it was me Rory Victor and Ludwig playing in the practice round and um, we got a course report from Eduardo Malinari and um, so he had information about the hole but on every hole there was like um, he had a little purple dot on the planner and that was supposedly the ideal tee shot. That was where, you know, if you could put it there, that's the best possible scenario. And Rory stood up on the first, and I think he hit it 30 yards past the ideal drive and in the middle of the fairway. So I said, yeah, I'll, I can play foursomes from there, no problem. <laughs> that's um, okay. Yeah, but I, th- I think the, the biggest thing that I find is, um, I've played with him a lot in tournaments, but the thing is with Rory McIlroy, no matter where you hit it, there's, an op- there's a chance that he's going to pull it off no matter where he is uh, because um, he just, you know, he's, he's that good. And I think um, that's pretty cool just watching the, the few bad shots that I did hit. You just watch Rory, like, working a shot out where he's going to take it on, which, uh, you know, any of us would have no chance of even seeing, let alone playing. And I think that was kind of a cool thing to watch. You took down Cantley and Chauflet in the, in the first day, I think, to, to, to do the sweep in the morning on the foursomes. They were an unbeaten pair from Whistling Straits, so they were one of the heavyweight American pairs, obviously two great players. That must have felt huge. Yeah, I think um, that first morning of foursomes was, uh, was just a, you know, an amazing result for us. And you, look, I, you enjoy playing against um, partnerships like that. It's an amazing opportunity when you're playing against them. I think you know, they were a great pairing, but me and Rory, who hadn't played together, we thought we were a great parent as well so I'm very happy to to go up against those guys and test yourself against the best players and and the best parents and I think again we you know if you're not already motivated you have the opportunity to take on like like you and everybody else said you know arguably their best partnership and we had the chance to play them and and get a huge point uh what we felt was for Europe so you know we felt felt pretty good about it and I was you know very excited to play those and and yeah in the end um you know, get the point and you feel great about it. But I think just overall, the opportunity to play against those was great for me and Rory. Yeah, for sure. For sure. It was, it was great to watch as well. <laughs> I can tell you that, Tommy. In terms of like 
you know, all the sort of storylines that evolve in a Ryder Cup over the course of it. It's, it's, it feels like so much happens in three days. And, of course, we, we know Rory got uh, quite, quite sort of emotionally uptight on the Saturday uh, with, the, with the caddy situation. Did that filter into the team room at all? Because he said it was a motivating factor for him. Did that, was that discussed at all in the team room? Um, well, yeah, of course it filters in. I think, I think all, it was, you know, all it was was the home crowd plays a huge part in the Ryder Cup, of course it does. And um, I think uh, I actually found it pretty funny that the hat thing with uh, Patrick and I was actually on 16. Patrick was laughing about it walking down the fairway. And uh, fair play to him, the way that he finished that match was, was, was phenomenal. Was awesome. Yeah, he did great. And the putty hold was brilliant and an amazing moment for their team. And all of us felt like the celebration had just gone on a bit long and was in Roy's way. And, um, and after that, the emotions of the Ryder Cup play a part, and um, yeah, bit of bit of needle there for a little bit, but that was that was you know great and and a you know just all all part of the Ryder Cup, and I think um, nobody would want to change that, and everything's fine, um, everything's fine now, and once it's done, but of course it was a look. You look for whatever motivating factors you can get um, in a Ryder Cup, and you look for whatever edge that you can get um, when you're playing, and um, that was one of them for. Rory and the rest of our team that you know like they had their motivation by the way that sort of the interaction with Patrick was and and it was it was like on that 18th was an amazing moment for them and you know good for Patrick like the way that he finished um, obviously we would have liked it to have gone another way but you look for whatever edge that you can get like I say and and that was one for us and we went out the next day and then you just focus on your game and play uh, after that. And how, how did it feel going off at 11? Because obviously, historically, this, that's a significant kind of area to <laughs> yeah. be in the singles. I, I know that you guys had a big lead and you, know, you probably thought, hey, I'm, it might even be wrapped up by the time my match comes down to the back, the back nine and the, the stretch. But you know, as the Americans seized that control in the sort of middle part of the, the singles draw, were you distracted by that at all? Did you, um, did, did, did you start thinking kind of ahead of yourself at all? It's, it is a strange place to be, uh, 11, and I played 11 at Whiston Straits as well. And um, So first of all, the singles is so different to the other two days. Everything's spread out a lot more, and especially if you're going out that late, you've had a lie-in, and then by the time you're warming up, um, the first two or three groups have gone out, and in general, the, the crowd follows the first two or three groups, so it's like ridiculously quiet when you're warming up and then um, you get to the tee and there's a few people left but on the course it's strange it's like really it's really weird and a strange place to be and I, th- I think like with that comes a bit of experience as well like um, playing 11 in Whistling Straits I remember me and Jordan were playing each other and so if there's a big lead the chances are that the Ryder Cup is going to be over before um, it gets to your match of course you want to win your match but the whole point is that the team are there to win the Ryder Cup so if that's kind of if that's done then you're kind of wandering around and finishing your match like um, you kind of want to win of course you want the pride of winning but then Ryder Cup's over so you're either celebrating because the Ryder Cup's won or you're gutted because the Ryder Cup's um, been won by the other team so that's, that's strange in itself and then the other point is is that if you have a lead like we have and then it is going to come down to you like, that's, that's, a lot of, that's a lot of pressure all of a sudden. So there's a few scenarios that go with it, and I'll probably end up playing there again now, but I've, 
like in you've all, made the spot your own in, in all honesty <laughs> like it wasn't my particularly my first choice to go out 11 um and i like luke said after it he said you know i know you probably didn't want to go there and i was like yeah but thanks for the opportunity now like it all worked out um and it is like as the singles were playing out like i had i had things i had some notes to myself wrote down because everybody's been very big on you concentrate on your point don't um, get overly caught up in the scoreboard because in singles particularly the matches can to and fro a lot more than in four balls four balls it's very very hard to win a hole you, you have to make a birdie or better a lot of the time you're playing better ball and it's very very hard to change that leaderboard um, whereas in singles you can win a hole with a bogey or a par it can it can to and fro so we're very big on don't look at the leaderboard too much or don't uh, don't fall in love with whatever the scores are focus on your point um, do your thing stay in the present try and take control of it that way so I had things like that wrote down which I was I was trying to focus on but as you're going through as as you're getting sort of through the round and you're looking at the board you're looking at it and then there's the potential scenario that yeah it's going to come down to one of these back matches and that's the point where you start feeling sick and that's where you just have to uh, have to just get get on with it and play and when it does come down when you think about it clearly what an unbelievable opportunity in your life to uh you know, to be there and be able to, to play that part. Uh, and 16, I mean, a word for the course, because I thought the course as a Ryder Cup venue was incredible. Yeah, I it, was it was great. Super, it was, yeah. you know, 16 with the, all yeah. the jeopardy there. You could, you could make an eagle, you could make a, a bogey yeah. or a double bogey. 17, really sort of fearsome par three. And then I know not many matches went to 18, but that was a great hole as well. Yeah, we said that. Um, actually, we said that in the... I played the Italian Open in 21, and we did say that what an unbelievable finish this could be for the Ryder Cup. Right. Um, like, and we played, when you play the tournament, 16 wasn't always drivable, but they, I had a feeling they would make it drivable every day. 17, an amazing par three, and there were some great shots on that. And then 18, a par five, obviously, where you saw some cool things happen. So it was an unbelievable finish for a Ryder Cup. And 16, Tommy, I mean, the day before, Jordan had been unsure about his club selection. He'd had a conversation with, with Zach about the club choice and he ended up hitting a poor shot. You've seen your opponent, Ricky, hit it in the water. What's, what's the conversation with Ian at this point? Or, or was there one where well, you already said? Yeah, um, actually one of the things that I'm most proud of about that moment was the conversation that we had and how, um, I would say kind of how in the present moment that we both were, like, you know, you're gonna hit a good shot or a bad shot. Um, but I think the build-up to the shot was something that I was very proud of in the ter- in like how we took our time and we discussed like the two options. Th- there was two options. I was going to hit my mini driver, which was always going to be sort of verging on short left. I just felt like I didn't want to hit that shot, even though Ricky got in the water. To me, I was one good shot away from winning the Ryder Cup. That was that was the point that we were at at this time, um, and I had Shane in front and Bob behind, so there was still. You know, there was obviously the three of us now that were, one of us was going to be the lucky one that, that got the point, uh, hopefully. And um, I just thought, you know, when we were talking about it, I just thought, you know, you're one good shot away and, and you're done. And um, like it was tee the driver down a bit and just put a normal swing on it. Ball was never going to start right. Um, and, and that was it, really. And then, uh, yeah, 
locked up and it was going straight. <laughs> one, one of the great T-picks, by the way. With the pro tracer, <laughs> as it's just it is drifting. A it is a good picture, that one. In the middle of the green and you're already down for yeah. the tee. How, was there like a surge of relief in your body as soon as the ball left the club face? What, 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 oh, what like you've got no idea. Um, <laughs> Uh, yeah, like actually, actually, honestly, I haven't even watched the Ryder Cup back, so I haven't seen. I've wow. seen a couple of clips of that drive because it was on social media and everything, but I actually haven't seen it play out in real time at all. I've seen that picture again a lot, which is a really cool picture. Um, I think honestly, the biggest, the biggest feeling at the time, I was pretty pumped when I saw where it was going, and then you can't see the green because of the sun's shining down on it, so you wait for the crowd's reaction. So there was an initial reaction when it bounced on the green, and then there was a second one when it had stayed on the green. And um, it could give me goosebumps now, but um, oh, it was like... So good. It was, it was a very, very... It was a very, very cool feeling. And, um, and then you get to walk the whole hole. Um, because really, like, doesn't feel it when you've got a putt. <laughs> but I think everybody kind of was like, we've done it at the time, at the crowd. But when it's you, you're like... I've still got it. I've still got a putt. Were you surprised, uh, Ricky's gimme? Because it was it was decent length uh, putt. I think I it thought. was closer than what people think. Oh really? Um, so it, the way that I would put it, I mean, he didn't have to give me it, of course. Like, it, and you know, could still make me whole. It was two feet, and there was one. So there was one um, Friday morning in the foursomes, and Rory hit that iron shot uh, on seventeen, and it was um, in any other scenario, it was a gimme and the, the guys made me put it which was fine it was like a two foot putt um, that was a very similar length probably I was very happy picking it up <laughs> like, <laughs> that was uh, for sure but um, again like you know it was um, it was one of those things I think I'm pretty sure I was never going to miss it um, and I, I do think it was closer and that was sort of um, in a way like it's a little bit frustrating um, because there's two things that people say. Either people say that was an amazing tee shot or people would say, can't believe he gave you the putt. And really, it was like, you know, like a great Come shot on. and I put it down to just under two feet. Like, and it was, it was, uh, it was a gimme. And, um, but like, you know, I think, uh, yeah, Ricky said, you know, you're never going to miss that putt, which um, more than likely wasn't. But, no, no. Um, I, I was equally as happy just picking it up. I mean, just to, it shows the level of you boys that, you know, how many of you put it to within an eagle putt range on... You guys were playing it like a par three. It was like, it was driver, but, you know, the ball was kind of running up through the back yeah. of the green. It does occur to me, and you hit some outrageous shots, Tommy, chip-ins, long putts. Do you feel you play better golf in the Ryder Cup than you do in regular tournament play? Or is it just a different type of golf? Um... No, I think, it's a, I think it's a different type of golf. And I think um, looking at it as a whole in the Ryder Cups that I've played, first Ryder Cup, I was so lucky. Um, I had Fran next to me, played with me all four days. It was playing the golf of his life. And I was playing great at the time as well. Couldn't have felt more comfortable in my first Ryder Cup, really, for the experience that it is. Um, and played very well. You know, Whiston Straits was tough for all of us. Um, I played okay. Um, and then this one, I think I came into it playing well playing solid like a lot of us did and um and yeah i mean i i feel good i feel like we you know all of us really have a really good um i think we just have a great sort of feeling for team golf and a really good attitude about it i think we all enjoy it and um i mean for me i mean you look at my partners i've had fran victor and rory so maybe i think the secret (laughs) and nikolai as well uh who we were very close to and so you know you look at those and 
um, I think the key probably is to pick great partners and then just do your do your thing. I thought what Justin said was interesting about being the custodian of the shirts and, and kind of paying homage to the history of the, the event and kind of having that almost that lineage and that connection to, to what it means to be a Ryder yeah. Cup player. Does that, does that resonate with you? Yeah, massively. And I think, um, you know, for us, we speak about it a lot. We're just part of a legacy that's been going on a long time before us and it'll be going on a long time after us. And our job right now, or it was at that Ryder Cup, was to um, carry that legacy and give it another piece of history uh, on the right side of it. And um, yeah, look, we, we, you know, we're not... Um, the Ryder Cup is a huge part of, of anybody's career and I think um, we have individually you take a lot of pride in what your Ryder Cup record might be or certain matches that you might have won but overall it's all about winning the Ryder Cup and playing a part in or adding if you like to the legacy that's gone before us because I think it's just such a huge part of our our lives and a huge part of our tour and a huge part of European golf is is the Ryder Cup legacy and Justin couldn't have said it any better. Um, and I think he spoke amazing in that piece that he said. And, and we're all very, very aware of um, that that's what we're there to do. What will it take? Because Rory said it in the press conference, winning an away Ryder Cup has, has become clearly yeah. one of the hardest things to do in sport. Yeah. There's, there's no getting away yeah. from that. You know, the Americans are so strong on their home soil. Um, you know, they've got a very motivated team. They've got an excellent team. In New York, Beth Page, it's going to take something Herculean, isn't it, to, to, to win uh, prob- that Ryder probably, Cup? Probably. Um, <laughs> I think, again, um, I love that it's one of the hardest things to do in sport. It's not the hardest things to do in golf. It's yeah, one of the hardest things to do but in it sport. Really is. And, I, and I love that golf can uh, you know, play that role and transcend through all sports. And I think, again, all of us, all of us are on a, on a high right now because of what this result was. And, it, and we don't have... It'll be a different motivation next time. Um, than what we had this this time. We were coming back home this time. We weren't happy with the way that the Ryder Cup had gone two years ago. We had a lot to prove, and I think so. The motivations will be different, but again, what an opportunity for us, uh, for whoever the team is. Like the qualification that starts again in however long that is, in a year or a little under a year, um, and all of us will be so motivated again to try and make that team, and then go to an away, Ryder, an away Ryder Cup and have the opportunity to do something like you say is one of the hardest achievements in sport right now and that is to win an away Ryder Cup. And if you like, um, it's different because you have everything to gain in this one. I think, you know, we can still look at four years the way that it went when we were last in America. Um, you know, pretty sure none of us want to let that happen again. But yeah, going to New York and having the chance to go into that cauldron and uh, get together and, and try and win that Ryder Cup will be something that's really, really cool. Is it fans, Tommy, or is it core setup that plays a bigger role? Well, I, I think it's I think it's a bit of everything. Of course it's some core setup. The fans play the pl- fans play a huge role in it because when you're at home, any kind of momentum that you have, you're riding the wave of the crowd. Um, it's massive. And then any time you're struggling, the crowd are there. Um, once they, you know, start making some noise, they can pick you up and carry you further than maybe you might go when there's no when the crowd's not on your side. So, yeah, they they play um, they play a huge part in it. And Luke was big on that the crowd were our thirteenth man um, and used them. Uh, but when when it's in a way one, you've got to find uh, different ways of uh, of creating that the atmosphere for yourselves because there's uh, you know the team is bigger than twelve. There's twelve players, but the team is a lot bigger than that. You all become that family, and you all fight for each other. Um, 
and yeah, you're going against the tide, if you like, for the, for the entire week. Would you endorse Luke having another crack? Yeah, I think Luke was... I've been very lucky with the captains that I've had in the Ryder Cup. People that have all been close to me throughout my career, Thomas, Padraig and Luke. And yeah, Luke, you know, Luke if, if that's the way that... If that's the route that we go, um, then I think Luke would be, would be an amazing... Um, and, you know, and that, that's... It might end up coming down to Luke. It's his decision. It's his and Diane's decision, if you like. There's a lot of work that goes into it and, and there's a lot of time. Um, but I think all of us, like Rory said in that... In the press comments, all of us will be very happy um, playing under the lead and captaincy of Luke again. So Tommy giving his full seal of approval to a Luke Donald sequel there, Zane. We're going to hear more from Tommy in just a moment on his academy, on the year, on the DP World Tour Championship. But there's plenty to unpack from the Ryder Cup, Zane. First off, the, the Rory McIlroy foursome pairing, Fleetwood Mac. All that chat that we had with Claude about data and analysis and the fact they had Eduardo Molinari running all the numbers and it comes down to the make a ball they play in the end. <laughs> I found that interesting. Yeah, and, and literally the make a ball because actually, as he shared with us, he doesn't even play the same type of ball of that make. So like, you know, what it, it did actually come down to just, just the writing on the ball. Amazing, really. Yeah, we, we thought we had it all figured out and as it turns out, it is, you know, I'm sure there's more to it. You know, quite interesting. He was saying that he's nearly played with Rory before. Uh, you know, just recently I watched a video that he's done with Rory on the range at the, at the Emirates. You know, one of his fun kind of uh, DP World video, social media videos, which is great, a great watch. And I think there's just, there's just a, there's a bunch of things, isn't there? That I mean, you put Tommy Fleetwood and Rory McIlroy together, they're going to do pretty well. Yeah, you I know, think that, that's that, it. It does kind of mix. They, they play a very similar game. They're kind of similar in stature, aren't they? You know, there's, there's a few different things going on there. But look, as you said, I've had the whole chat with Claude. It's all about the numbers, you know, what's the strokes gained, all this sort of stuff. And it's just like, what board you got? have you got? <laughs> you played a red one or the black one? Yeah, 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 let's use that one. Yeah, you two play together. Like, it's, it's madness, isn't it? <laughs> It, 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 listen, he is the common denominator. He's very, he's very self-deprecating. He said that you know, Fran played the golf of his life. Molinari, when they played together in Paris, and and Mollywood was formed, and they were undefeated. He was undefeated in the foursomes as well um, with Rory. Yes, okay, rightly he points out that he's had two very, very good partners, but. Tommy Fleetwood is is a great foursomes partner. There's no doubt about that. Both of those guys would testify to that. I mean, there's, is there anyone in the world of golf would, that would think? I'm not sure if I want a Tommy. I don't want a pair out of Tommy Fleetwood. You're just thinking, well, I'm going to be in. I'm going to be in fairways. I'm probably going to be pretty close to most pins if I put him in the fairway, and he can clearly putt under pressure because I've seen him do it before. Like, what a what a player! I mean, it was. You know, it's almost quite nice, and, and it's golf like that, and and I think it probably pays to Tommy's um, just his, his own personality, really, that even he. He like appreciated getting to play golf with Rory McIlroy. Like, this is Tommy Fleetwood. This is not just anybody. But he's like, even when he said that, he's talking like a just like just like one of us who's just a fan of these great golfers. And he's saying, you know, what 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 a nice thing to get to, what a great opportunity to get to play golf with Rory McIlroy. And I just happened to get to do it in the Ryder Cup. Like, you know, it's just <laughs> it's just something like really normal about Tommy Fleetwood, even though his game is completely extraordinary. Something about him, which is just, just he's just relatable, which is, is uh, you know, so nice. I think we we all like the the sportsmen who are just completely off the wall, like the Eric Cantonars and the Ibrahimovic, those sort of characters. But there is also who are not relatable at all because they're just like, 
just mad scientists and geniuses and you know mm. that has an entertainment element but there's something about someone like Tommy Fleetwood just going like oh, you know just getting to play golf with Rory and you're thinking everyone out there is thinking yeah they would love to have that one round with Rory McIlroy that's it yeah exactly that and what, what stood out to you from the kind of nuggets from that interview Zane um, just the things that he mentioned about getting the opportunity to, to hit the winning shot or, or to, to, to claim the winning point and under the circumstances that he did it what stood out to you about what he said yeah, there was a couple of parts. I guess you could tell there was a the, the little bit of showman in him thinking he was quite aware that it was one of him, I think Shane Lowry. And Rob, and Bob, Bob McIntyre. Who were going to basically going to win the Ryder Cup. So he was obviously, you know, feeling quite confident. And it, but then there's, there's that small piece of like, he wanted to be that person. Like, so he knew, and as he said, like, just one good shot from winning this Ryder Cup. And like, so, you know, that that's a little piece of him, which is, Yes, he's a nice guy, relatable. That's a small bit of him. He's like, I want it to be me, which is, you know, which you want from your big stars. And then the other part, just a little nugget that he said, oh, you know, teed it down a little bit. I knew it wasn't going to go right. And that's that little piece. That, and and that, I thought from a, a golf coach and the player element, you think that's really clever, that, because he seems like a real technical player. You know, he's always working on his golf swing. But like any, it's a good thing to kind of learn for most people is there something that you can do that it may not count to the next person, but just like he just knows that when he tees it down, the ball doesn't go right. And now he's turned to what was like a really difficult shot, trying to hit a ball for 300 yards to within, you know, kind of 40 feet radius down the hill with a bit of wind under all that pressure, water down the right. And there's, but there's like, he's, he's looking, he's thinking about what's the one little thing I can do, which can eradicate the big miss, which, at that time, worked perfectly because he, he tees it down, doesn't go right, the water's right, and now he can swing nice and confident because he's thinking, if I miss it, I'm going to miss it left, I can chip it down the green. And I thought that was quite interesting. He didn't, it, and it wasn't like a, I've got to like put on this new, this new goal swing, I hit this amazing shot I've never hit before. He just like, he just took something from, he probably worked out in practice with his friends and he's put it into that moment and it's absolutely paid off. And that's something that we can all kind of learn from, you know, we haven't necessarily got the capacity to, hit it, you know, 295 through the air. But is there something you can do? Is it like, I remember chatting to Colin Montgomery and he used to say that if he had water on the right, that he'd move his right hand more underneath the grip. So he'd move his right, his thumb towards the right side of the grip and he would hit shots and he would go, watch, this won't go, this won't go right and it would just turn a little bit left. And you think of all the amazing things that these great players do. It, it's like a, a, a small little move or a little piece they've made up in, in practice and they use it in the biggest situations when they really need it. And um, yeah, I'm really thankful for Tommy's tee down, don't go right tee shot. <laughs> yeah, as is every single fan of Team Europe. Um, I can't believe he hasn't watched it back. You know, he said that he watched some clips on social media. But, you know, Zane, I mean, I have to hold my hands up here. If I get sent a shot of me doing a good golf shot, I'm liable to watch it back hundreds, if not thousands of times. Tommy's just won the Ryder Cup and he's barely, he's barely watched the tape back. I, I can't wrap my head around that. Hey, I, I think if, if, if someone records <laughs> one of your great shots, I think there's a really good chance that I'm going to see it multiple times. <laughs> you are, <laughs> yeah. <watch> <laughs> you are. You may well have been recording it and I will fire it off to you on WhatsApp or tag you on, on Instagram. But uh, yeah, I just the, I found the that. The will be there. I can't wait for that moment, Robbie. <laughs> if I were Tommy, I'd have had the Ryder Cup on loop since I, uh, since I left Rome. Um, but, you know, <laughs> I'm not Tommy. And that's just, just one of the many reasons. On, on all the screens. <laughs> 
every time he walked into his house at home just Claire can you just make sure that when I come home that that's all on please <laughs> yeah playing on loop uh, but let's get into the second part of this chat with Tommy Fleetwood I mentioned that it took place at the Tommy Fleetwood Academy that's at the DP World Performance Centre up at the top end of the driving range at Jumeirah Golf Estates important to say that it is a, it's a separate entity to the Jumeirah Golf Estates so you can join the Tommy Fleetwood Academy as, as a member specifically of that facility and you've been up there Zane I mean it's uh, it's celebrating its one year anniversary it's a heck of a facility this it's the dream for any coach for any aspiring golfer you've got everything you could possibly need there I mean it's top top notch isn't it it absolutely is it's a world-class facility you know you're not going to go anywhere uh, which is going to knock the spots off that some of the college places actually have some really nice facilities but I can live it with all of them you can practice every single shot you can, from long drives all your approach shots out in the range from grass which is a, a big you know, big ticket. Then you've got the big slopey putting green to test all aspects of that part. Then you've got the two, then a long pitching area, shorter pitching area. You know, you've got the, you know, they, they use good golf balls. And as you say, like, and then you come back to the building and you've got, well, you've got air conditioning for when you're working up a sweat out in the range. You can pop in for a little while. But, you know, as you say, you've got like, you know, you've got all the changing rooms there. You've got the like, nice chill out area, first class gym, putting studio, the tech studios. Just, you know, if you want to go and do a day's work, just get into all parts of your game. What a brilliant spot to go to. You know, it's, it's not, you know, normally pretty much, you know, 360 days of great, fantastic weather. And then the environment of people coming in through there, seeing other professionals there, that, you know, that's the place where all the pros want to go and hit balls and, and practice. So, yeah, just it's a, it's a dream. And for someone like Tommy, who likes to hit balls himself, I think that's another nice added, added element because he knows what a good standard is. And he knows that it's somewhere where he wants to train, he wants to practice. So you're going to get first class, you know, because it's what, you know, a world-class golfer, Ryder Cup winner, what does, where does he want to practice? And then he's kind of living out his own little dream at the TFA. Oh, to be a junior living in, in Dubai, uh, visiting the place where, you know, you, you, the man whose name is on the academy building is also practicing and he's a Ryder Cup hero, for goodness sake. I mean, it doesn't... We're too spoiled out here, or at least the kids are. Uh, it's, it's far too late for me, Zane. I'll, I'll settle for breaking 80 every now and again. But uh, listen, Tommy's got some great initiatives with the Academy as well. He's actually taking it on the road this week. He's got school visits planned with the TFA Performance Container. So we'll hear a little bit more about that. We'll talk a little bit perhaps about that in just a moment. But first off, let's hear from Tommy. I asked him what his aspirations for the Academy are. The biggest goal of the academy is using the game of golf to help people excel in their lives and whatever they choose to do. Um, if that's golf, if that's a career in golf, then that's um, then that's great. And but whatever else that people, whatever other passions people have, um, everybody here, we're all a massive believer in the game, creating the best environment possible for people to thrive and grow. And um, and yeah, so simply put, using the game of golf to excel in whatever your chosen field is. The facilities here. Um, do they uh, do they kind of blow you away as well in terms of what what golfers can come and experience? <laughs> yeah, I, at this um, academy. It wasn't certainly anything that I ever had oh, when I was a junior golfer. N- no, me neither. Um, <laughs> but I, yeah, yeah, I still uh, I still turn up here every day um, with my kids um, or just come into practice on my own, and sometimes just pinch yourself with um, the opportunities that you have, um, conditions, facilities, um, everything about it, and then the people are a huge part of that as well. So like 
unbelievably lucky to come here um, every day and uh, and do what I love, which is which is playing and practicing golf, and it's my job. But there's very few places in the world that can sort of match this place for what it has. And it's not just the incredible facilities, Tommy. It's the fact that this is accessible. It's 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 a standalone academy where people can come down. They can work on their game. It's open to all golfers. There's an accessibility there that I think is really important because sometimes golf has been viewed as a sport that perhaps lacks that, perhaps could, could do with more of it. The fact that you can join this academy, you can use the gym, you can avail all this incredible equipment to help your game, you know, that, that's a great thing for golfers who are, who are keen to kind of make progress living here in the UAE, isn't it? Yeah, of course it is. And I think, um, you know, joining a golf club can be quite an intimidating experience as well. Um, but I think with what we have here, at the academy, look, whether you want to hit balls, we have um, a par three course that we set out on the short game area. You have the gym and, and just um, being a part of golf can still be a part of your lifestyle um, without being, you know, you don't have to be a, a member um, of a golf club or elsewhere or feel like you have to go and play 18 holes. Um, everything here is, is there for you. Um, and you can, you can just be a, um, an academy member. You, you know, you can have lessons and yeah, just make it part of, uh, make it part of your life. Yeah, I know plenty of people who the only golf they play is on the golf course. If you are listening and you want to really improve your game, uh, you need to actually do a bit of practice, it's fair to say. It's also great to see DP World, um, you know, who have obviously become the title sponsor of the tour, actually support something at a more of a grassroots level where there's a trickle-down effect. We know what activations they do with the schools, but also to support this academy, it's not just the elite-level tour that they are putting their weight behind they're also investing in in local players in young players and that's a good sign isn't it which is amazing yeah and i think um you know my own vision and dp worlds are very much aligned in terms of um the the grassroots level of the game um how it can help uh people of, of all ages um throughout and again like i said like i've said whether you play at the elite level or whether you want to spend time with friends, whether you want to be part of an environment where you feel like you are growing in different skill levels all the time, I think our visions are very much aligned and having um, somebody as supportive as DP World uh, that are playing such a huge role in people's lives now doing this, um, we're all very, very lucky. When you were a junior player, what, what were the sort of key ingredients for you to you know, fulfill your potential, to, to maximise the ability that you had? Well, the first thing I think is... Um, as a, as a player and as a kid, the uh, desire to want to come back, play, practice every day. Uh, with that comes, you know, making sure that it's an enjoyable, an enjoyable time when you're at the golf course. But then I think um, information is, is so, so important. And um, particularly when, when you're younger, I think seeing yourself progress is very, very important. Um, as you get older, uh, you sort of have an understanding that not every day is, is like that, no, but you're always taking a step forward. But I think... Um, having access to the best possible possible information and then having access to the facilities where you can go practice that and work on that and then the environment of people around you uh, whether they're friends or the golfers that would come here that are practicing whether that's the coaches that are relaying that information and helping you get better I think all of those play a huge part in um, in your day-by-day journey they just um make you want to come back the following day and go again how um how important was your kind of support system when you were growing up yeah, yeah, massive. Um, I, you know, as as a kid, uh, and I still have it now. I, I think I was, um, I always had a strong like desire, and I had an amazing, uh, I had an amazing work ethic where I just loved 
Um, I loved practicing, I loved playing, I loved uh, trying to sort of better myself. Um, but I also had, I had parents that were fantastic, um, like hard, but in the right way, um, you know, still very supportive. And, and it, was, it was never, um, with my parents, it was never about, yeah, there was like a performance element. They, uh, they wanted me to play the best I possibly could, but there was um, a lot more emphasis on um, who I was as a person, a lot more emphasis on the effort that I put in when I was playing um, and my attitude. And when I look back now, I, you know, I'm, I'm grateful for that because I can carry that with me. Um, and then coaches, I was very lucky to have um, good access to the coaches on the teams that I was getting, where I, whether I was at a, a club level or county level or eventually national level. I was, always, um, I was always with very, very good coaches that I was getting told the right things all the time that would, that would make me better. And then I would go and practice that. And um, that's kind of like, I guess, the circle of yeah. um, evolution that I think everybody uh, needs. And you, you had a great amateur career, obviously. Did, did you just find, did it, uh, did it come easily to you in terms of competing uh, no. against, no. against these guys? Was it, was it, were you an absolute range rat? You uh, know? Yeah, I was, yeah. <laughs> I, um, yeah, it was, you know, I always, if I played, uh, if I ever played poorly, my focus turned to practicing to make sure it was better. Um, but I, I, I loved, I loved competing. I, I loved entering events. I loved playing. And again, I, I never enjoyed playing badly. Uh, but I learned a lot from those times. And I just, I think it's so important to um, play tournaments and compete against, um, compete against other players because that's where that's where your real game would come out, um, and that's where you see where you can. Where you can improve and get better, and I just, I just enjoyed that side of it so much. Um, and yeah, being around players, whether they're a similar standard or not, I think the most important thing is being around people that are actually um, trying to get better as well. Like everybody's on the same journey. It's just where you know, different levels don't make that much difference. Everybody's still every day trying to get better. The psychology of the game. You know, we, we talk about how go- how good you guys are under pressure. How do you learn that? Um, yeah, I've probably messed it up um, as many times as anybody else on the planet, you know. Um, I, th- I think it does. The first thing, it comes from experience. You have to put yourself in those situations and win, lose or draw, you learn every time. Um, and you have to have a good awareness of how you felt at that time and what went wrong or what went right. And then the next job is putting yourself into that position again. And, um, and yeah, there's plenty of times where, you know, I, uh, I fail over and over and over again in... in those pressurized situations but there's also plenty of times where I succeed as well and you're just learning all the time and then from that you can practice it you can yeah I definitely think there's an element where you can go on the range or wherever you are and you can try and visualize visualize yourself in those situations know how you wanted to think know if you wanted to do anything differently from the last time you were there and you can practice it so that you're that little bit more ready uh, when the time comes again but First point of call is actually putting yourself in those situations um, and, uh, and having the courage to be there and probably be willing to fail, if you like, so you can learn for, for the next time. Uh, I, I just think that's so important. And yeah, um, there's times when it'll go well and there's times when it won't, but that's just life. You know, looking at the year, I mean, I, I assume the Ryder Cup uh, has played a massive role in, in how you would view the year. Uh, and maybe, maybe you can elaborate on that, but you've played some, some really good golf this year, you know, doing well at the Tour Championship, the playoff at the, the Canadian Open. How do you reflect on your year as we are now, what, just under four weeks away from the DP World Tour Championship? 
Yeah, it's been a, it's been a great year. Um, there's still uh, goals that I've uh, so far fallen short of throughout the year that I would set for myself, but um, there's been a lot of things that I've uh, achieved as well. So overall, I think very, very pleased with the consistency levels that I've shown, where my game's been at, the improvements that I've made. Um, a lot of the results I've had have been great. You know, gave myself a chance in a couple of majors. Was so close to winning on the PGA Tour. Still a couple of events to go in Europe that I can, um, that, that I have the chance of winning. So uh, we won a Ryder Cup. Um, it's, been, it's been a very, very good year um, with, you know, some things that I've fallen short on at the same time. But um, I think that's probably how life should be. You know, uh, stretch yourself, aim high, and then uh, you're going to succeed at some things, fall short at others. But again, you know, I, I feel very motivated um, with, where, with where I'm at and where I can go from here and hopefully I can just keep ploughing forward. R- Rory said something interesting. He said sometimes he, he, he's accepted that he's wanted to win majors too much. He's kind of gotten in his own way. Do you relate to that statement? Yeah, I think, you, um, I think the, the hardest thing to deal with for anybody, but in my experience, is your own expectations um, and your own will and desire to, to win and do well. And I think you're always fighting against that and you're always learning how to deal with that. And again, just experience tells you that. And if somebody like Roy McIlroy is saying that, then um, you should listen and probably uh, and learn from that. But for sure, I think every time we go out, certain events mean more to us than others. Of course they do. There's, there's events that you've dreamed of winning um, all your life and some that have an emotional connection to you. So they're obviously the very difficult ones. But I think dealing with your own expectations is always something that's... Uh, for as long as you want to be a high achieving person, then that, that will be something that you have to deal with. And you're just learning all the time how to deal with that. And I think I'm getting better at it, doing a pretty good job of it. Um, there's plenty of times where I come off feeling sad and disappointed and annoyed at myself, but plenty of times where I feel like I, I've coped with it well as well. So um, yeah, I, th- I think one in that is, is a great thing. And just dealing with that is, is, is something that you have to do. And that comes with it um, and yeah you just learn every time you go out DP World Tour Championship the last one for you I know it's a special week for you I know you've lifted what must be the heaviest trophy in golf <laughs> yeah uh, it was quite well. heavy I wasn't very strong <laughs> at the time <laughs> either it definitely looks like it requires a session <laughs> in the gym before you lift that thing but uh, you know how special is it we've seen the event grow I think it's the 15th edition now of the championship I know a lot of people here they mark it out in their calendar whether they're golf fans or not as a day a special kind of day yeah. to come and enjoy for the players, does it, does it mean something special as well? It is a great event. It's a special event. And I think anybody on the DP World Tour, when the season starts, which, will, which is in November or December, um, first goal is you want to make it to the DP World Tour Championships and, and play here. And I think because it's been at this golf course for such a long time now, I think that creates visuals and memories and certain moments in your head and you can picture it so well, which I think is one of the great things about the event. And yeah, like winning, winning the race to Dubai in 2017 still ranks um, arguably the best achievement in my career. Um, you know, such, showing such a level of consistency and holding that trophy at the end meant so much to me. I'm yet to win the, I'm yet to win the DP World Tour Championship and that's something that I would love to do as well. And again, like I can picture myself doing that and I think equally this time uh, or the last two years now that... Um, I guess our whole family feels such a part of this community. Again, it's just an added sort of emotion to it as well. So uh, looking forward to when that opportunity comes again. 
Well, listen, Tommy, best of luck for the remainder of the season. Looking forward to seeing you back here in a couple of weeks yeah. at the Duport Tour Championship. And as for your academy as well, all the great initiatives, you're taking it to the schools. You're doing some great stuff in the community to help get, encourage kids to get into golf, which is a, is a great thing. Yeah, like I say, I, uh, I'm a massive believer in the game. Um, and I think uh, the benefits of it, you know, go way beyond just golf. But the uh, first priority is bringing the game to as many uh, kids and as many people as possible um, and letting them see what it's all about, enjoy it, and hopefully they feel like they want to come and give it a go at the academy as well and we can sort of open them up to this environment, which I think is uh, you know, very supportive and everybody is sort of doing all they can to move you in the right direction, um, whether that's golf or anything else that you want to do. So uh, it's going really well so far and we have an amazing team of people and um, we'll keep pushing. Yeah, really excited to see where the academy will go with Tommy behind it. As I mentioned, he will be taking it out to the schools. He's got a, a container. It's like a shipping container, courtesy of DP World. And the TFA uh, performance container is essentially a mobile unit where pros can go and give lessons to school kids at schools. So you're taking golf. They don't have to come to the golf course. They don't have to go to the driving range. They just have to leave their classroom and, and there they can have a golf lesson. And when you're talking about trying to get more people involved in the game, that's a pretty clever way of doing it, Zane. It's a brilliant way of doing it. And that's kind of where we are in the world of golf today with technology, with the, all those advancements. We're able to get our sport to people that wouldn't necessarily even think about playing golf. And you know what? And you got sometimes you've got to go and work a little bit harder and take it to them and make it convenient. You know, we live in a world of convenience these days. And also, in, in, in a way that suits different cultures, in this manner, it's going to schools. You know, if you can be at school, to then have to be picked up, you know, having not played golf before, why, why, why would you necessarily want to get picked up, get to the golf course? You know, that takes time. You know, get to, to an academy, for instance, hit some balls. You know, it's not not always the fastest sport, then have to get all the way back to your school to get picked up. That's maybe a full day, but all of a sudden now, someone hasn't tried it before, they can, on their own campus, go ahead, give golf a go, and be like, yeah, I really like this. Like, you know, it's a first step. The next part is, al is always, where do I go from here? The good thing for, for the TFA is they've got like, the first section of being like, come into our, this performance studio and give golf a go. And then the next bit, they can answer that question and say, you can actually come to our facility, which is on grass, which is actually out at a golf course. So that's a really nice funnel uh, that they created there. So, yeah, what a great initiative that is. And I think it, and it just, it's just really in keeping with golf today, which is actually yeah, youngsters today are much more um, keyed up on numbers and all the, all the numerical parts of golf and how, uh, how technology fits in. When, when I played, uh, maybe yourself, Robbie, we didn't have like lasers, didn't know how far. We had a 150 post and you'd, you'd play golf and you, there'll be a 150 post and you'd look at it, it'll be 30 yards ahead or 30 yards behind and you think, <laughs> yeah, it's about a five iron. <laughs> about this club and I'll kind of do that. Whereas now, I coach some juniors and I'm having chats with them, you know, and I'm a coach and, I'm, you know, I've done all the track, the track man courses and feel like I know the numbers and the force plates and that sort of stuff. And, and then I'd be, walking along you know in a, like a playing lesson with like a 14 or 15 year old young golfer and he was and i'll say oh you got new clubs yeah i got new clubs yeah yeah that's that's good oh they're nice what why did you pick those thinking when i picked clubs when i was 15 i thought that looked nice like whether it had if it had a completely wrong shaft in it i didn't care if it was too whippy 
I would just swing it slower. Or if it was too stiff, you'd just try and hit it harder. But this, you know, this lad's going, well, I tested my, my ball speed with that model was had a variance of like four and a half, you know, four and a half miles per hour, where with this model, my ball speed on miss hits was like a variance of two and a half miles per hour. So, you know, that equates to like, you know, four, four and a half yards a shot. So my dispersion is much closer. And I was like thinking, I'm supposed to say that to him. <laughs> I'm trying to work it out in my head. Like it's like a matrix going on. Like, like yeah, yeah, yeah. Hey, I keep, keep up here. And it's so, and it's so different. You know, we, we, we don't fear numbers and, you know, technology these days. And that's, and that's what kids are, are like, right? Trying to get, um, trying to introduce golf in the right culture. Like, it's so different. Kids are so used to computers now, you know, touch screens, you know, numbers, all this sort of stuff. Whereas, you know, it was, it was different for us. And that's great that Tommy and, you know, and the DP World Tour are actually, you know what, going, this is the way we did it. The next generation are going to do it this way. Let's cater it for them, not, not try and fit them into our mold. And I think that's just fantastic. Do you tend to see with the juniors you coach saying, because of course you've got your own academy, is there less individuality now in golf? because of this obsession with, with numbers and, and hitting the right spots? Or do you still get those individual quirky moves? I mean, Scotty Scheffler should, should seem to be a case in point. You know, he's, he's not a conventional guy at all. He's not an orthodox player. Um, but, but the youngsters coming up, do they all tend to swing it the same way now? There, there are a lot more principles that the youngsters seem to fit into. Like, when I, you know what, and you do see it in general anyway. I think back to when I played, and even now, a lot of the Americans do have quite quirky moves. You know, as long, long as you hit those numbers, it doesn't really matter how you get it done. Scotty Scheffler, world number one, is the absolute epitome of that. Like, best ball striker in the world right now. And it looks like he's, he's swinging on ice, basically. It looks like he's going to fall over and break an ankle every time he hits a driver. But then it tended to be like the Brits. The Brits, for instance, and Tommy Fleet was like the epitome of that. Very, you know, well-coached. A very organised golf swing. Nothing, there's nothing funky going on. You look a lot of the British, British golfers, and is that a, a Nick Faldo kind of legacy, possibly from that point of view? It might be, but there is a def- definitely a blueprint now for what makes a good golfer. There are more golf, good golfers now because more coaches can can now say they have their little nuances. But we all know that your club path has got to be in this window somewhere. Your spin loft on a chip or your spin rate on a chip has got to be this. Your attack angle on a chip has got to be in this window. Your club head speed, if you're going to be any good, has got to be at least 114 miles per hour these days if you're going to, and, and above. And it, with a launch angle of this, with a, with, with a, you know, with a, a dynamic loft of this, like these, how you get that done is all different. But the blueprint now for a good golfer is so different. You used to be able to make a living and be re-competitive of having one superpower. Whereas now, you've got to have one superpower and everything else around it on the verge of being a superpower. Whereas before, you could have a real weakness and hide behind it. If you have one weakness now, you just, you just won't make it. But the difference is it's easier because we know what... Victor Hovland has been a prime example of that. Like he's, he, he was an unbelievable ball striker. is an unbelievable ball striker. His short game was overly average. But through numbers that his coach uh, Joseph Mayo shared with him and the science behind it, told this is what you need to do and and produce it. He's found a way of doing it and he's gone from being a poor short game player into a fantastic short game player and that wouldn't have happened without numbers. He would just have been one of those other players. I hit it great, I can't chip. 
but now we've got the data to you've got the blueprint is this, this is what a good chipper does does this and this and this and then these guys with our talent can work out a way of producing that and he's just gone from you know openly saying you know in the press conference i suck at chipping to now chipping in on the first green of the Ryder cup off of a tight lie to a spinny downhill you know what nightmares are made of all of a sudden he created the dream he has uh, certainly hit the heights there. When you get out here, Zane, the first thing you're doing when we catch up is, is giving me a chipping lesson, please. I'm going to get that are, request into the diary. <laughs> we are on it. I've been on it the last two weeks, been working on some short game stuff, which has been like banding around, and you are going to love it. I can't wait oh, to get my hands in chipping action. I cannot wait. Zane, uh, I think we've got to stop waffling on for another episode of this podcast. I've got to say a massive thanks to the whole team that made the Tommy Fleetwood conversation possible. Big thanks to the Tommy Fleetwood Academy. Big thank you to Tommy himself, of course, for giving his time and to the DP World Performance Centre as well up there at Jumeirah Golf Estates for, for lending us their academy and their, their centre as well and for uh, from being great, great supporters of the academy and the initiatives like the, uh, the TFA Performance Container School Initiative Project that's going on this week. So massive thank you to them. I guess, Zane, um, we've got another episode coming up next week, of course, but not long before you touch down here and excitement building for the DP World Tour Championship in T-minus three weeks now. Yeah, absolutely. I'll, uh, the first part I'm looking forward to is trying to take the money off you on the golf course. <laughs> that and should be pretty part, straightforward. You see all the amazing players flock to JGE and we get to uh, talk golf on that. Cannot wait. Cannot wait. Zane Scotland, absolute pleasure as always. We'll catch you next week. The first tea.